Welcome into the Autzen Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Priam, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on the show. Welcome to Tuesday of Husky Hate Week. Um, it's going to be an interesting show today. We've got a lot on the docket. We've spoken with Oregon head coach Mario Cristobal, with offensive coordinator Joe Moorhead, defensive coordinator Tim DeRuder, and I think the biggest, probably the most significant takeaway from the probably 45-minute conversation with all three of them combined is what looked like maybe some injury concerns that happened before and during the Colorado game may not be necessarily as bad as anticipated. I mean, Jared got the story up on DuckTerritory.com. Jared, run through the injuries first and foremost, but the fact that Steve Stevens got carted off and might not be – out for the year um, or out for a long period of time is very positive news. Yeah, so Mario was asked how Dante Manning is doing, how Jordan Happel, Steve Stevens, and Damon David are doing. And to start, Dante Manning, Mario Cristobal said that he's good to go. Uh, he also went out of his way to mention that Alex Forsyth is full go. He practiced uh, yesterday, which is Monday, or excuse me, the Sunday. We had a press conference with Mario on Monday. Uh, he mentioned that Jackson Powers Johnson is still day-to-day, even though last week he said that he would be out several weeks with an ankle sprain, which the x-rays were negative. Uh, Jordan Happel was a full go at practice on Sunday. Uh, Damon David was also a full go at practice on Sunday, which is good. Damon went down with a shoulder injury on a tackle. Looked like a stinger, but you know, don't want to speculate too much. And uh, Jordan Happel was injured against UCLA. Did not play against Colorado. Uh, I saw him on the sideline with some sort of hand or wrist cast, something like that. Um, but, yeah, what Matt was saying, the most important one, I think, is Steve Stevens, who yeah. was hurt during a punt return, uh, looked like a, it was a right leg injury, was down for a good bit, had to be helped off the field, couldn't go under his own power, and then was later carted off the field into Oregon's locker room. Uh, Mario Cristobal said that he was – Originally, after the game, he said it was a soft tissue injury, which doesn't sound great. But to, uh, Monday, Steve Stevens uh, apparently was reevaluated with a further, further injury, according to Mario Cristobal. Uh, he said that he hyperextended his leg on film, but it looks like he has a chance to play this week against Washington. So that's good news on the injury front. Um, really good news, frankly, with Steve Stevens. Uh, Brian Addison came in as his replacement during the game and had a better second half to say the least than the first half. But this is uh, what two or three weeks in a row now that Oregon's injuries aren't detrimental to the team as they have been in weeks prior. Uh, Doesn't seem like anybody, you know, suffered a a consequential injury again this week. So that's always a positive note to come out of a big win against Colorado like they did. I think it's significant because you don't want to be too critical of Brian Addison, but you look at a lot of the success Colorado had, and it was they targeted him. They went after him, and he, met, mm-hmm. he had some pretty significant assignment errors. Some, he was slow to rotate a couple of times. Um, you know, you watch the game again, you you kind of see where a lot of the issues were. I think Colorado did a good job of kind of finding the least experienced guy and, and going after him. Yep. Jordan, Jordan Happel, if healthy, would have been the player on the field over Brian Addison. Um and Damon David was getting an opportunity in that same position, in that same role, prior to going down early in the fourth quarter. So these are two guys that will, in theory, 
I don't want to say they remove all of Brian Addison's snaps, but if Steve Stevens can't play, I would I would expect Jordan Happel is a starter, and I would say that between Addison and David, they're probably rotating behind um, him. So, and, and again, best case scenario, Steve Stevens doesn't miss time, and that this knee issue it sounds like he's dealing with um, is not serious and doesn't limit him in a way that makes him too significantly different than he has been too much of a, you know, you don't, you don't want him to be a, a couple of steps or steps slow, I should say. Um, mm-hmm. Because I, I think you come away from that game with Colorado going, okay, the buffs in real time sort of identified where to go. Washington, if you've given a week, you can say what you want about their offense and some of the productivity there has not been good, but these are still competent coaches and they will identify what we as, you know, non-coaching people who watch these games saw, which is that Brian Addison wasn't very good and you could go after him. Um, I think you have to feel better now seeing the fact that Apple should play. Sounds like Damon David should play. And Steve Stevens even has an outside chance of playing. Not that that's entirely going to sway an outcome, but I think if you watch the game more and you think about it, there's a chance that Colorado scores 13 points rather than 29 or something like that. If, if they have a little better play out of that second safety's position. I'm trying to look at the safety position, and I I think it's safe to say that of the five guys that play in the DB backfield for Oregon, I, I think Steve was probably the one that was the most susceptible to maybe losing his job with if Oregon's entire room was healthy. But I think the Colorado game, like Eric said, you don't want to be – too negative on Addison, but the Colorado game sh- showed the importance of Steve Stevens. He's he's a guy that doesn't really pop, um, doesn't move the needle a ton, but that game really showed us the things that he does, and we maybe just gloss over um, because Colorado went right at Brian Addison a couple times, just scored a touchdown on one of them, um, and so if they can get. Steve Stevens back, and if if Happel is back, the depth gets better. Damon David getting healthy again, the depth gets better, and you're back to a better position, which is ultimately what I didn't think was going to be possible middle of the game against Colorado. So that's really good news. The four-size stuff that Chris, like Jared brought up, Chris of all just threw it out there. Um it's not that we doubt Crystal Ball with that, but it's been this way for what four weeks in a row now. A month, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of just one of those deals where it's like we're, we're we're we'll believe it when we see it, not because we 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 don't think he's being truthful or what what have you, but it's just a back injury. And one day you could wake up and be totally fine and practice, and then the next day could be the vice versa. Um, I will be curious if he is back in this game, who do they take off the offensive line? Because they're kind of humming right now. Now that they've kind of found their way of, of their lineup, this kind of maybe is the transition to the next spot is Moorhead spoke ho- very highly of TJ Bass at left tackle. And I don't mm-hmm. think you move him from that spot. And I don't know if, if you if you move off of Stephen Jones at right guard, I'm trying to think of this on the fly here, 
I think in, in my mind, assuming, and here's a question is uh, that's like actually the way to start this is if Forsyth's back, we assume he's the center again, right? And he doesn't play guard. Like we yeah. don't think Ryan Walk has totally taken this job. I mean, and I, I, I personally don't think so, but Ryan has played at such a high level that we have to at least ask the question because and I think that speaks to how well he's played because mm-hmm. Ryan Walk has played at an all conference caliber level these last right. three to four weeks in place of Alex Forsyth at center. And so let's assume Forsyth does come back and, and regain the starting spot at center. You're not moving TJ Bass. I think he's your left tackle the rest of the way. I think you keep the right side of the line the way it's been. Both Stephen Jones yep. and Big Saul have been very, very good there. And my best guess is you have now Ryan Walk at left guard. That would be how I would so – I'd go left to right. I'd go Bass, Walk, Forsyth, Jones, and Big Saul. That would be – my kind of spitting, you know, kind of spitballing, kind of throwing some ideas out. That would be the way I would think would be the best way of going. The, the right side of the line, I think, is pretty solidified. Has looked good there. If Forsyth, we think, is the center, you don't want to move the left tackle, and Ryan Walk has to be on the field. And that means George Moore doesn't start, and that means Dawson kind of comes off a little bit more. I think those are probably okay developments. Um, because let's be honest, TJ Bass, I think we should, we need to talk about this, has been – Really, really good at left tackle. We talked about it on the Mailbag podcast on Monday, as Matt alluded to. Um, Mark Cristobal was highly complimentary of his play. And then Joe Moorhead was very high, highly complimentary of his play, too, saying he was kind of a natural fit at tackle, which mm-hmm. is an interesting thing to hear about a guy who had previously been playing guard for the first, boy, what is that, 12, 13 games of his college career at Oregon had been a left guard almost exclusively. You know, they, in the last couple of years, they rotated a ton. But one of the mainstays was TJ Bass played left guard. and He basically played left guard only. And now you're seeing a spot here where the staff is like, hey, he's really a fit at tackle. And I think that's a welcome development, clearly. And again, I just don't see how you move him at all. And I don't know if it's going to be this year plus a year, this year plus a couple of years, because in theory he has some more time based upon what happened last year with the COVID stuff. I think he's your left tackle for at least – this year, the rest of the way, and then all of next year, assuming he comes back. And again, if, if he wants to come back the year after, which I don't know if he would, maybe he's your left tackle there. I just think they found a solution here with, with TJ. Why? I think – I, mean, I was just going to agree with that George Moore is probably going to be the odd man out in this situation where Alex Forsyth comes back. But if you look at it, it's not – it's certainly not the worst thing in the world because right now that offensive line is humming and – you know, Jack Spires Johnson is going to be out for, I don't know, some period of time. It could be a couple of days or it could be a couple of weeks. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, you'll, you're going to have George Moore and Dawson Jaramillo coming off the pine. And those are two guys who have shown that they can play almost every position. Um, we, we know that Dawson can play center. So in a hypothetical world, if, if Forsyth and Walk can't go, you still have somebody who can play center, which is – you know, speaks to the, the versatility that Oregon coaches and the versatility that Oregon recruits. Um, but yeah, TJ Bass, man, what a revelation! It's because it's not like he was a bad left guard either. He no. was like the most surefire left guard on the team. He was always going to be your left guard. Like every day, every week, you went into the game thinking, okay, well, the offensive line has done a lot of rotating, but TJ Bass is still there, left left guard. That's his spot, but. Uh, yeah, he's just been proven the last two weeks that he can that he can go and, and play left tackle. Uh, it's honestly kind of a shame that we didn't get a full game against UCLA with TJ Bass at left tackle. 
because I think that's a better defensive front than Colorado's is, even though Colorado's is still a good front. Don't get me wrong, but you know, he performed pretty well during his like brief stay at tackle against UCLA until Jackson Powers Johnson was hurt and they had to reshuffle the line yet again. But it was really interesting to hear from, from coach Moorhead that he was a natural fit at tackle. Uh, I think this is probably what Matt's going to bring up. It's like, well, why wasn't he playing there beforehand? Um, that's certainly one to question. Uh, I think Oregon has a lot of depth at tackle. Do they have like that kind of special talent that Panay Sewell was or Tyrell Crosby was prior to him? Maybe not, but they have I don't know, at least four guys right now on their roster who could play tackle, and now we're just adding TJ Bass to the group as well. Yeah, you're right. That's where exactly where I was going to go. Was it, it was it was one where it was kind of like, well, if this is the natural position for him, uh, why 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 are we seeing it for the first time on October or middle of October? We've seen it again at UCLA too. Um, maybe he's also just better as a guard, but projects as well as an offensive tackle. I don't know. Um, certainly one to, to think about. Um, there's, I, I'm with you guys. I think George Moore is probably the one that, that comes off the field and is maybe your super sub. And that makes Dawson Jaramillo another guy where he can kind of plug and play wherever because we've seen him play guard. We've seen him play tackle as well. Um, I think rounding into form – now we're we're seeing this offense click, and I think there's probably some high optimism um, inside that program right now. That with four games remaining on the schedule, they've kind of found their groove. They've kind of you know figured things out at quarterback. Um, Joe Moorhead talked about that again today uh, of the improved success, and it was interesting that he called Anthony Brown a very even keeled guy and didn't really show much concern when he was playing bad and isn't really like riding on his coattails right now when he's playing clearly at a really high level as well. Yeah. I thought the even keeled comment was kind of interesting, you know, um, and I, he's not the first person to say, it. I think Mario said almost something identical after the Colorado game there. Um, probably go find the quotes, but just to the extent of like, he's not someone that gets up or down and, I think that probably is something I know fans were responding to in a negative way when it wasn't going well, because I think there was mm -hmm. like footage against UCLA after an interception of him on the sideline, kind of like laughing and, and enjoying himself. And fans, of course, don't like that because they want the quarterback to be, I don't know, unhappy with himself or frustrated and not showing that. Um, I think that's a good thing, though. I think it's a yeah. good thing you have a quarterback who doesn't get up and down with the highs and lows of the game because you have seen in the past with quarterbacks all over the country where that is the case. And I think even an example we can, we can speak to of how Anthony responded to what happened at Autzen against Cal a couple of weeks ago, where I think a lot of us, if we were in that spot, if we were criticized the way we were, if we were booed the way we were, would get really down and wouldn't have the response. But what did Brown do there? He led the team down the field, and they scored two touchdowns in the fourth quarter to make sure they got out of town with the victory, and they and yep. then they sealed it. So I think that's something where 
that quote will probably be looked at and people will say, oh, maybe that's not a good thing. I, I think it's a very good thing, the fact that he doesn't get too high, doesn't get too low. You want that. You know, what is one of the things you hear about quarterbacks is you want one with the, you know, not much of a short-term memory. You know, that you don't want one that is constantly going, oh, man, look at that play I just made, and, and he loses and makes a mistake on the next play because of a play he made previously. I don't think you get that with Anthony Brown, and, and you do want that as a veteran presence here on this offense too. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think it's important to have a quarterback who's even killed, um, especially that position. You know, you can you can get away with playing with emotion at a lot of other positions in football, but at quarterback, with like so many preparation steps and just during the game and how, the ebbs and flows that go with it, I think it's really important to stay level-headed. Um, you know, always be the calmest one in the room type mentality, and I think that's what Anthony. Anthony Brown really does does well. And for Oregon to have that at the helm, you know, it's similar, I think, to how Justin Herbert was at times where he didn't show a lot of emotion. I think he still probably showed more emotion than Anthony Brown has, or at least, you know, they, the, the camera well was always on him, at Herbert, when he was playing. But, you know, Brown has that emotion, uh, you know, after the – game ceiling touchdown against Cal. There was a lot of emotion going on after he ran into the end zone. And, you know, those are the types of plays that you'd like to see from your quarterback where they are even keeled throughout the drive. But once they hit that pass or once they hit that touchdown run, you know, that's when the emotion comes out because they did their job. They stepped up, they performed, and now they can celebrate. But next drive, it's you know, back to the game. It's back to being even keeled and moving forward and not letting anything get, get too much in your head. And just always looking to improve and looking for that next next time to do something better. The defense, speaking with Tim DeRuiter, before we move on to the next part here, um, the defense, DeRuiter talked a lot about there were some positives against Colorado, um, but he also noted that there were, once again, some inconsistencies. And I wonder how much of that dealt with the lack of the injuries, you know, the rotating of guys in the second half, um, and then also them not playing. I think it's probably a combination of all three of those. But nonetheless, it was a little interesting. Like, he he wasn't really just negative, but he also wasn't really positive. And, and maybe it's at a point where it's kind of like we know what the, the deficiencies are with this defense. They've struggled to get off on third down. Uh, and that kind of showed up again against Colorado. And he, he just like, I, we just have to keep playing better. And there's really nothing more to that. I think maybe part of what that is, Matt, because I agree that demeanor was interesting, was that like maybe they felt like they'd found some solutions and then you lose one of the 11 that's out there all the time. And yeah. suddenly there are new issues that present themselves. Like, if, you know, it'd be like if you were solving a math problem and you get to the final part and you go, hey, I, there's the solution. I've got it. And then you and then there's randomly another clause inserted into what you have to deal with. I wonder if that's part of it of like kind of going like, I don't know how math problems work, as you can tell. I'm just like on the fly. Like, like apparently these math problems can like move and grow on their own in, in my mind. But, but you see the point of what I'm getting at is like throughout the course of a season, I think they've done a good job of establishing what they need to work on. And I think they've made huge strides. We saw it against UCLA for the most part in that game. And then against Colorado – their first drive, they look awesome. Even their second drive, they played really well. And then they're dealing with kind of another issue. Because, again, as we said at the start of the show, say what you want about Steve Stevens. Maybe he doesn't pop. Maybe he's not that sizzle player out there. 
but there is a baseline of what you can expect from him to be competent, to make the right decisions, to not be completely out of position all the time. And, and certainly there have been issues if you go watch games in the past where he has been out of position. He hasn't played well. But I think they felt pretty good about that spot, and they felt pretty good about a lot of things. And, and maybe what we're listening to from, from Deruder is, well, the things we thought we had needed to correct before were kind of corrected, and yet we had other issues that popped up that were out of our control. Um, that may be me just reading between the lines. It, to be fair, though, as he said, like they do need to be better on third downs. And when they don't aren't better on third downs, they need to finish drives on fourth downs. And um, this is a defense that I think ranks near the bottom of the Pac-12 in both third and fourth down conversion efficiency. Um, you know, I love to look at the splits because I think they actually do a pretty good job on first and second down. Um, teams do not typically get a lot of yards gained on those downs. And that's what makes it sort of infuriating at times is it seems like you're facing a lot of third and fours and third and eights and third and tens or even third and twelves and fifteens and what yet whatnot and and yet they're not getting off the field and maybe they don't get the maybe maybe they get the stop on third but it's fourth and two now and it presents a spot where the opponent goes for it. Like UCLA had five conversions on fourth. Colorado did not have quite as much success, but those are areas you're starting to see. And then I think the one that Tim didn't bring up but I'll bring up is just the lack of turnovers and, and pressures of the quarterback against Colorado. I thought was Something we talked about on our recap show on Saturday, how quickly Colorado got the ball out makes it tough to get pressures. But collectively, I don't think they were quite as disruptive against Colorado than you're used to seeing. And, and certainly against a Washington offense that is very much is different than Colorado, but does some similar things in terms of the screen game and personnel perspective of, of running out of 12 man um, with two tight ends and, and whatnot. Of They need to make progress in those areas and be better or else you could see some re repetitions and some repeats of some stuff that bit them on Saturday, Biden again this weekend. Yeah, I think this was another case of having to make adjustments on the fly due to injury. Yeah. And with Steve Stevens going down, you know, Steve has been around the program for, I think this is his third year, fourth year with the program, excuse me. And yeah, that, that means a lot. And he's been playing safety this entire time. So he knows the playbook. He understands where to go more often than not. If you rewatch the game and you rewatch Colorado's uh, drives where they ended up marching down the field and scoring, you know, a lot of it was communication errors. And, you know, it's communication errors with Brian Addison, who's just put into the game. It's communication errors with Jeffrey Bassa, who's a converted safety, who's now playing linebacker. Um, those are things that with enough game repetitions that can be sorted out. However, it's you know, it's really difficult to sort those things out during the middle of the game where you have no option or no, no other option and who's playing where. So I think that's something that can be alleviated when people get healthy. But, you know, as we've been saying for the entire season, you know, Oregon's had these you know, brutal injuries to you know, vastly important players in their, in their, in their defense. And the defensive line pressure, I'm, not really worried about. I think it's just a really good game plan from Colorado. You know, Tim DeRuiter talked about how Colorado played more 12 personnel with two tight ends and, than they expected, um, which gave them more, you know, better blocking, especially with two tight ends to, you know, kind of take away the pressure that Oregon's line gave them. Um, on the rewatch, it did feel like Oregon got pressure when it wasn't 12 personnel, like they were able to attack the quarterback pretty well. Um, you know, these are things going forward that are, you know, willing to keep an eye on, especially when you play Washington, who does run a lot of 12, 12 personnel sets. 
that's kind of their bread and butter. They're a big power offense, uh, kind of pro style. I guess I'd consider them pro style more than other teams. So like Eric was saying, you know, Colorado and Washington do kind of have this similar offensive look. So, and Deruta was asked about that and you know, how important is it actually this time around with, with 12 personnel? And you know, he seemed honest enough about it where it was really important to him because that's really what Washington runs. So that'll be something to look forward to. Um, barring health, I think Oregon could be you know, the same as they were the last few weeks in terms of defensive preparation and performance. We just to our final topic on this podcast, and that is a discussion that happened at halftime of the Colorado game. Um, if you were at the game, maybe you missed it, but if you were watching, you probably heard it. And it was the Fox's halftime show discussing Oregon versus Ohio State in the college football playoff. And it's kind of morphed from not just those panelists discussing it, but it's a national discussion right now. Ohio State is sixth in the call in the AP top 25. Oregon is seventh. They have the same record. Um, Oregon beat Ohio State at Ohio State. And later tonight, if you're listening to this podcast in the morning, uh, we're going to get the college football playoff projections this week. And I think this is probably going to be the toughest and most debated discussion the next four weeks is what do you do with Ohio State and Oregon? Because Oregon has won the head-to-head. Um, they have probably played the tougher schedule leading up to last week. Ohio State will certainly play tougher teams down the stretch. They have looked better than Oregon has in their wins um, compared to Oregon's wins. And Oregon has also lost to a, a, a poor Stanford team. Is it feels like, while it shouldn't, but it feels like style points are going to matter for Oregon. And if and if they want to, I mean, I, I would think, I would hope the committee puts Oregon ahead of Ohio State this week. Um, but it feels like the last four games of this season for Oregon, if, and five if they get to the conference championship, if they want to make the college football playoff, we're going to have to see more performances like Colorado than we did against UCLA and prior to that. It's a really frustrating situation, I think, just around Oregon football and that game in Columbus, which is now almost being talked about like it didn't happen or that it happened so early on in the season that it's less important than the stuff that's happened after. And I want to just like provide a little context for this conversation because, okay, you talk about how Ohio State has been dominating opponents, and they were. They have been dominant. They have been more impressive in terms of the margin of victory than Oregon has been since that game. But here's what's happened. Here's here's their schedule since Oregon won 35-28 on September 11th. They beat Tulsa at home 41 to 20. That's not that impressive, right? That's not that good of an opponent. Next week, 59 to 7 over Akron. Again, it's Akron. 52 to 13 over Rutgers. Okay. This is the most impressive game on the schedule so far for them aside from what just took place this last weekend, and that's 66-17 to 17 at home over Maryland, and then 54-7 to 7 at Indiana. I think it's a two-win Indiana team. And then this last game, a 33-24 to 24 win over Penn State at home. It's a Penn State team that has had a really strong out-of-conference schedule but has kind of slipped up and fallen apart recently. And I, I just kind of go, 
this feels a little unfair because you point to just like what Ohio State has done, and, and and I understand Oregon has played some pretty bad teams, some very bad teams, and has not won as impressively as, as what Ohio State has done. But I also think when you look at the quality of opponent Ohio State has been playing during this run, it's like have they done enough to really suggest that they have turned a corner and are better than Oregon? I, I don't know if they have. Like, are you super impressed by a team beating Akron 59 to seven and Rutgers 52 to 13 and Indiana 54 to seven? Again, these are like middle of the road, smaller conference teams or big 10 teams. And sure. You'll say that's more impressive maybe than what Oregon did against Arizona or against Cal or even maybe against Stony Brook, certainly the Stanford lost, but I feel like we're losing sight on the fact that these teams actually have played this year and instead we're measuring it up and saying, oh, look at Ohio State winning these games by like 40 to 50 points. But it's not like they were putting it on Penn State. Like for me, like if, if Ohio State had gone out and beaten Penn State 54 to 7, I would be like a little more open to the idea of like, wow, that's a real barometer moving win. Like I just I find that hard to believe. So there's like a baseline for this discussion for me of like, I, I think it's unfortunate that this game in Columbus is now suddenly being rewritten almost as like, oh, Ohio State should have won that game. Well, Oregon was out a lot of key players in that game and really had complete control of the entire thing. And like, I almost feel like I'm hearing now some sort of rewriting of like, well, Ohio State should have won the game. Oregon got lucky to win. No, Oregon was in complete control of that game from the opening kick until the you know to the final drives of the game. Sure, was it close and competitive? Yeah. But, like, Oregon won that game fairly decisively, and now it's becoming something it wasn't. And I just think all of it's frustrating. And to Matt's point, yeah, I, I, I do think, sadly, Oregon needs to be a little more decisive in how they win these football games because, again, we'll learn a lot tonight. I expect Oregon will be ahead of Ohio State. I think that's what it should be. Oregon has all the metrics in their advantage. They have the head-to-head. But I do think you could see a narrative start to develop, and not only could, I think we're already seeing it start to develop of, if these two teams have the same record at the end of the regular season and everything else is equal, that there that there's going to be a real possibility Oregon kind of gets looked overlooked here by a team they actually beat in the same season. And to me, that would be very disappointing. Do you guys think that Oregon's win over Fresno State is more impressive than any Ohio State win other than their win against Penn State? Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. <laughs> like, look, uh, Oregon – Oregon right now has two wins over AP top 25 teams in Presto State and Ohio State. Ohio State and a whole bunch of other people only have one. Oklahoma, Wake Forest, Michigan, and Notre Dame don't have a single win over a current top 25 team. It is going to be imperative that Oregon A wins out the rest of the season, obviously, and B that they win in triumphant fashion. They unfortunately have have or have had an easier home slate just you know judging by teams this season and now have to go on the road to Washington and Utah but if they win those games in I don't have I don't even have to say dominant fashion just handily you know 10 14 points just make it known that they were the winning team I think that's going to be huge for them and you know if they can beat up on uh Washington State at home, which could not happen. Who knows? But they can beat them up on home. I think that'll be important as well. It's a very tough situation that Oregon finds themselves in. And 
realistically, like going into the season, I thought it would be an even harder situation because I had them losing to Ohio State. And yet I almost feel as if where Oregon is right now is in a worse spot somehow where all of a sudden their win over Ohio State isn't as credible as it was, you know, six weeks ago. And it's a very interesting narrative, and I'm not really sure how it's going to turn out because Ohio State, like we've talked about in podcast past, have really big games coming up on their schedule. You know, they just beat Penn State, who was 20th in the country at the time. Um, they kind of skated by. So that's something to take, take a look into. But they also have to play Michigan and Michigan State at some point during the season, which are two top 15 teams in the country. And if they beat both those teams and Oregon wins out, like we talked about before, you know, is that head-to-head -head in September going to resonate as much as it will in at the end of November, early December? So that's, that's the issue that Oregon runs into. And I think that's going to be our talking point for the next few weeks as long as Oregon continues to win and as does Ohio State. Because Oklahoma has a hard schedule to finish with. Alabama is one loss away from being out. Um, Cincinnati seems like they'll have a pretty easy time winning out. SMU lost last week. Not a great loss for them. So they're no longer undefeated, but that'll still be a good game later on in the season. So we'll see. I, I, barring an Oregon loss, I feel like this is just going to be the consistent issue going forward. And we'll really see how much the college football playoff selection committee puts that head to head compared to all the rest, like the strength of the schedule and every other metric like that. I think what's also frustrating is that the big 10 is being propped up as a really, really deep conference right now. And some of those teams like Iowa, they, they have lost two games in a row by a combined score of 51 to 14. Mm -hmm. And if, Oregon was to do that in the Pac-12, lose to Purdue and lose at Wisconsin by a combined score of 51 to 14. They'd be out of the top 25. They wouldn't survive that. And yet yeah. Iowa isn't just in the top 25. They're in the top 20. And Penn State is the only 5-3 and three team in the top 25 right now. And they have lost three straight games. They've lost at Iowa by three. To the, they lost to Illinois at home by two points. Mind you, a bad Illinois team. Yeah, and then good. they lost by nine at Ohio State. But like, like Jared said, that game was probably closer than the nine-point margin of victory. But they've lost three straight games, and yet they are still in the top 25. Um, I'm not, you know, Michigan, what happens with them moving forward is certainly going to be something to watch as well, because they lost at Michigan state 37 to 33. It's their first loss of the season. They still have to play Penn state and Ohio state, but it, it it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. Oregon is in this position where it, like maybe I don't know how they get out of it. Like, because if they blow out their opponents, oh, well, that's what you should have been doing. 
anyways. And if you lose, it's like it's almost like a, a propped up version of playing an FCS team. Like you you blow them out and you don't really get any credit because that's what you should do. And if it's close or if you lose, it's like, well, you were overrated. I don't like it. It stinks. And I part of this is the Pac twelve collectively doing Oregon no favors. Yes. Mm-hmm. This, these last four games are, we talked about this on Monday's mailbag, might be the four best teams in the conference, possibly. You could certainly have an argument. They're in the top half of the league for sure. And yet none of them are top 25 teams. If Oregon beats them all, none of them can win nine games. Yep. And you're setting up a thing here where you're right. If Oregon finishes hot, wins these last four games, they're not going to have played any of these teams that are top 25 opponents. While Ohio State will have two wins over top 25 opponents, two wins maybe over top 10 opponents, depending upon how Michigan State and Michigan keep playing. And it's just this vicious cycle for the Pac-12. And if you're Oregon, I just think you have to be very frustrated because you did what you needed in the non-conference. You slipped up against Stanford, and we have to acknowledge, if you don't lose that game, we're not even having this discussion. They're already set up. We're maybe having a discussion of – They're number two right now if they don't slip up. Yeah, they're two right now, and you're maybe having a discussion of, okay, are you susceptible to a one-loss team from the Big Ten, jumping them at some point or whatnot. But So they own that. But, like, overall, it's like it would just, to me, feel like such a disservice to go out and have a marquee win over Ohio State and then lose one game in the Pac-12 and somehow not make the college football playoff. To me, that doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't feel justified. And I know this is another sport. Part of this stuff with the Big Ten reminds me a little bit of what happened last March in the NCAA tournament on the men's side where you look around and it's, oh, my gosh, the Big Ten has five teams that are top three seeds, I think, and none of them make it to the Sweet 16. And the Pac-12 has no seeds that were better than what – Matt would remember this better because he covers men, but, like, better than, like, a five seed or a four seed maybe. And they all they have three or four teams that make it out of the first weekend. So um, I won't say that's what's going to happen, but I, I just I just feel like we're seeing a repeat here where – Perception is the Big Ten is this incredible conference. Oregon beat the best team everybody thinks in that conference at their place, and yet the perception is because the Pac-12 fell over itself around them that the conference stinks and that Oregon is somehow invalidated, almost based on no fault of their own. I mean, just wait until Alabama beats Georgia in the SEC championship game. Yeah, that'd be disastrous. It's going to be even worse. I mean, because then it's – I don't know, probably by the end of the season, it'll be three or four teams fighting for one spot if Cincinnati goes undefeated. It'll be Bama, Cincinnati, Georgia, and then the fourth team is going to be you know, Oregon, Ohio State, and Oklahoma. Oklahoma, if they, if they win out. And those all three of those teams are going to have great records, great wins to go off of, especially if they all are 11-1, and one, or uh, Oklahoma is going to be 12-0 uh, and 0 if they continue to win out. Someone's going to be left out of this playoff. And in years past, it has always felt like, well, no, it's just obvious that the Pac-12 isn't taken as seriously as every other conference. Um, Whether that is correct, I don't know. There's no other Pac-12 teams that are ranked this year so far, but that doesn't help. Um, But the Big 12, Big 10, SEC bias certainly is there. And... I don't know. There's part of me that doesn't blame any of that just because they produce a better team usually than any Pac-12 team. 
but it prove it, you know, like what, like Oregon is the best team in the Pac-12. They beat the best team in the Big Ten. So let them go at the best team in, I don't know, the SEC or the Big 12. But I don't know, if we get to that situation where everybody continues to win, it's going to be a tough one for Oregon to say, hey, let us in. One, one last thought, Matt, before we wrap up. I just want to say who would have thought in a year where Clemson and the ACC is completely out of the picture that it would be this muddled and this chaotic because you'd think that would be one of Pac-12's biggest saving graces is the ACC yeah. is not even in the discussion, and yet they're totally out of it. Clemson's, what, three losses? Mm -hmm. They're not even in the discussion. They're not even – they might be ranked – I think they might – did they jump back in? Are they ranked again? I don't remember. I don't um, think so. Their best option is Wake Forest. Yeah, but it's like – it's to me, that's just like it, it adds even more frustration of like the other Power Five conference that almost always has a Clemson in there. Almost – what have they been in four or five straight of these you know playoffs, and you thought here's right. the year where they're out. This opens the door, and it hasn't really, not so nope. far at least. It's going to be interesting, that's for sure. I mean, tonight's broadcast of playoff rankings will give us a clear indicator, and I think it's, I think it's going to be telling of Oregon's chances if they open up the rankings and they're already behind Ohio State. Um, if that happens, boy, it's – it's going to be tough sledding, I think, for Oregon to overcome Ohio State, which is unfortunate. Um, we'll have reaction to that and more this week on the remaining shows of the DuckTerritory.com, uh, Austin Audible's podcast, getting you ready for this weekend's game at Washington, 4.30 kick on ABC. The trio of us will be there uh, reporting from Husky Stadium. And until our next show, you've been listening to the Austin Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace.